to High Truths on Drugs and Addiction, where national experts bring you facts and answer your questions. I am your host, Dr. Onit Lev, an emergency and addiction doctor who has served at the White House and still practices on the front lines. Right here on High Truths, you will learn from experts, hear stories from the emergency department, and listen to people who have struggled from addiction. Friends, fentanyl is plaguing America. It has infected all illicit drugs, from cocaine to meth, counterfeit pills, and even marijuana. If you're around someone who may be using drugs, you should carry naloxone, the opioid reversal agent. Carrying naloxone for drugs is like carrying an EpiPen for allergies. If you need a prescription for naloxone, you should have one, no questions asked. That is why I'm offering a free prescription to anyone who needs one. Come visit me on hightruths.com to learn more about the show, submit a question, or download a free prescription for naloxone. And if you like the show, do me a favor. Give us a five-star review and subscribe. Your stars are very much appreciated and go a long way in supporting the program. Today's episode is sponsored by Families Against Fentanyl. FAF is an organization set on breaking the status quo of failed solutions and to get to the core of the supply chain of deadly fentanyl. Learn more about FAF by visiting familiesagainstfentanyl.org and sign their petition to declare illegal fentanyl a weapon of mass destruction. Hello, everyone. I am so excited to be with you for another informative episode of High Truths. You're going to like this one. I'm your host, Dr. Roni Lev. As you may know, I am jealous of infectious diseases. These days, it's all about COVID, 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 COVID hotels and Shigella diarrhea hotels and all sorts of resources for infectious diseases. But what about drug overdoses? Fentanyl has taken more lives in ages 18 to 45 than COVID. The number of teens who died of fentanyl has tripled in the past two years. The number of black teens affected and died of fentanyl has gone up fivefold in the past two years. It's time to attack fentanyl overdoses with the same vigor and approaches as we do the coronavirus. That was my quote in a recent Fox News story. I told the reporter that it is heartbreaking to treat babies who overdose or people who have no idea their pills or powder was contaminated with a deadly poisoning. Treating fentanyl overdoses is an attempt to bring someone back from the dead. As an emergency physician, I do my best, but sadly, we are not always successful. Fentanyl is preying on the vulnerable in our society. So what can I do about fentanyl as a doctor? There are a few things I can do. I'm very proud to have authored a California bill that will require all hospitals to include fentanyl in their drug screens. Most hospitals do not do this. Fentanyl is a synthetic opioid that does not show up in a hospital drug screen unless the lab buys a 75-cent reagent of fentanyl. Despite the fentanyl crisis, most hospitals do not do this. If passed, SB 864, Tyler's bill, would be very exciting for me as my very first piece of legislation to author, and if passed, it will also engage the medical community in solutions and treatments for patients. It won't end the fentanyl epidemic, but it will make some strides in the right direction. What else can I do as a doctor? 
I can administer naloxone to save people or provide free prescriptions as I do on my website. I can treat fentanyl addiction for those who want to be helped and get treatment. And I could work on prevention and encourage kids and young adults to protect their growing brain and not use marijuana or any addicting chemical before age 25. Marijuana and fentanyl are linked. You cannot talk about primary prevention for fentanyl without mentioning marijuana. Not everyone who uses marijuana will end up using fentanyl, but everyone who uses fentanyl at one point started with marijuana. So as a doctor, I can treat overdoses, I can work on treatment of addiction and work on prevention. That simply is not good enough. It does not stop the pipeline of drug use and poisonings. We have to do better. And that is why I support Families Against Fentanyl, the sponsor of this episode. FAF aims to have fentanyl declared a weapon of mass destruction. What is a weapon of mass destruction? Perhaps you're thinking a nuclear weapon or mustard gas. The definition of WMD, according to the Department of Defense, is a chemical weapon capable of causing mass casualties. In 2002, Russia used fentanyl analogs that they pumped into aerosolized fentanyl into the Dubrovka theater that was seized by terrorists. The terrorists and 120 hostages were killed, mostly from deadly fentanyl. This is a historical example of fentanyl being weaponized in a meeting and meeting the traditional definition of WMD. But today, as I speak, we're not being sprayed with aerosolized fentanyl, but we're still being poisoned. I ask you, is 64,000 fentanyl overdoses a year not a mass killing of Americans? Are we not experiencing mass casualties? We need to do something so drug dealers, cartels, and governments think two, three, four times before bringing in drugs that kill Americans. Fentanyl does meet, today, the definition of weapon of mass destruction. And with that, let's hear our question of the day. Hi, my name is Larry Irwin, and I am in a unique position as I am currently practicing as a physician assistant in emergency medicine, as well as a full-time police officer in Southern California. I see the devastation that drugs have on our community, both from the medical side and the emergency department, and from the community side in terms of 911 calls, whether it be for violence, crime, or overdoses. Uh, I just want to say thank you, uh, Dr. Lev. I've known Dr. Lev for approximately 20 years, Uh, definitely doing good work bringing forth these tough discussions that are impacting our communities. My question for High Truths is it's quite obvious more needs to be done to combat the influx of drugs, especially ones laced with synthetic drugs such as fentanyl and carfentanil. These toxic and deadly drugs are being produced in huge quantities. What else is being done and what can be improved to combat the transport of these drugs into the United States? And what can we do to ensure we keep drug cartels out of our country? Thank you, Larry, for your question. What a blessing you are to San Diego with a unique experience in medicine and law enforcement at the same time. How cool it is to work side by side with you one day in your white lab coat and see you the next day in your blue uniform bringing us a patient. I talk about a white and blue partnership and you personify that in one wonderful individual. Larry, to answer your question, I have a special expert for you someone from Mexico 
who is intimately knowledgeable with drug cartels, and I'm going to ask him your question at the end of the interview so we could learn more about the drug operations. Luis Chaparro is a freelance journalist working at the border between Texas and Mexico. He specializes in investigative journalism, breaking news, interviews, and digital storytelling. You can find Luis Chaparro's bio on the High Truth show notes. Luis Chaparro, welcome to High Truths. Dr. Leviza, it's a pleasure being here with you. I know I'm not your usual guest, but uh, this should be interesting and fun. It, it is. I've been looking forward to this conversation. I have to tell you, I've been watching some of your videos and felt really scared, scared for you. Like, what is this guy doing? Like, he's risking his life. Yeah. Um, with, um, so you're an investigative journalist. How did you, out of all the things to investigate, get into the subject of drug cartels? Well, I grew up in, in Ciudad Juarez, um, right across El Paso, Texas. This is this was once Mexico's, um, I think it was the world's most dangerous city because we had an average of 13 murders a day. So that was that was crazy. That was when the whole cartels in Mexico were started were starting. And I started to learn about criminal organizations when I, at the same time, was in college um, going through um, journalism uh, uh, university in, in Ciudad Juarez, in a private university in Ciudad Juarez. So my school was basically the streets of the one's most dangerous city in the world. So that's where I learned journalism. That's where I got um, fascinated by um, criminal organizations, not in the um, not in the bad way. Um, talking about like it's really interesting to me how they work. How are they so resilient? How they get to violent levels that every year gets worse and worse. And how they operate like multinational. Um, you know, operations all, all over the all over the world, and and, and that's how I got um, into these, and and I started like developing sources all over uh, Mexico, all over the U.S., um, some some of them also in Central America. Did you run into drug crimes like that as a kid in Mexico? Yes, I mean, I had I had an interesting upbringing. Um, I was in a, in a private school, one of one of the most expensive um, primary schools in Ciudad Juarez, and at the time, of course, I didn't know. But later, with time, I learned that at my same um, classroom, I was with um, El Señor de los Cielos, Amado Carrillo's um, sons, which uh, you know, the Lord of the Skies. He was one of the biggest uh, drug traffickers ever existed. Um, in, in in Latin America, or I guess in, in the world. And his son was with me back then. And then, then I remember growing up and people talking about him, talking about his family and talking about this kid uh, now being the new boss. So I was like, what? I was with him in primary school, you know? And so to me, that, that blew my mind. That was, that was crazy. So, I mean, that's how I started. And then the whole war uh, began in Ciudad Juarez and I began watching gruesome stuff that I, I I don't think it's uh I don't think it's good to even repeat all the all the you saw this comments. as a child I saw that as a, as a teenager so when I when I was in um secondary school uh, in high school I mean um I, I started like watching these happening around my city around my neighborhood um uh, and then uh, I said what I was shocked I was confused about what was going on in my city and and about why so I started asking questions I've been I was always very curious and I started reading at a very early age. I, I started reading uh, literature when I was five years old. And so uh, I've always been keen to reading. And I started like reading journalism, learning what was happening around my city, what was happening around my, my, my town and my country. 
And I decided I wanted to be a journalist. I, at the time in high school, I didn't even know what that meant. You know? But I was like, I, I want to be a journalist. I want to go deep into what's going on in my city with these, um, this war, you know. Wow. And now you live, we're, we're talking to you now from Mexico, right? Yes, exactly. I, I live at the border. I have, a, I have an apartment in El Paso, Texas, and I have a house in Ciudad Juarez. Well, I rent both. Um, and I go back and forth. Uh, and also, I go a lot to Mexico City. So I spend half of my year in El Paso, half of my year in Ciudad Juarez, and, you know, like sometimes a few days, a few weeks in Mexico City. Right. And you recently, uh, recently visited uh, Kiyakan, right? If am I saying it right? Yeah, um, Kuyakan, the exactly. Uh, the capital of Sinaloa, yes. uh, home of El Chapo. Mm -hmm. uh, when I think about Sinaloa, I think, uh, right, uh, drug kingpins and a scary place. Mm -hmm. um, it, it, did you go there feeling uh, scared as, as part of your job? I, I go often to Culiacán since I have a, a bunch of sources down there and I always want to have a feet on the ground and feeling what's going on with the Sinaloa cartel specifically since it's being fragmented and the U.S. is uh, uh, put, like up, upping the, um, the rewards for El Chapo's sons and for El Mayo and these other criminals. Um, so I go very often to, to Culiacán and Culiacán, it's a, it's a beautiful city. It's an amazing city. It's a, it's a, it's a very... Um, clean and, and, and nice city in, in general. The people living in Culiacán, it's beautiful people. You have these great restaurants, um, great seafood. Uh, you have a, like a river walk, beautiful river walk, beautiful lives uh, downtown. Uh, but at the same time, you have a bunch of drug traffickers around. You know, you have the maybe the most powerful drug cartel in the world. Um, based in Culiacán, which is the Sinaloa cartel. So are you uh, like sitting in a restaurant, you know, having your burrito and looking and seeing, <laughs> oh, that guy is a drug trafficker? You Do you identify him or it, it's a hidden, unspoken thing? Yeah, it used to be more open. It used to be more like you wouldn't see people with carrying guns or whatever, but you will see flashy cars. You will see Lamborghinis. Um, you will see, um, you know, Ferraris around town. And of course, who's... Who's driving a Ferrari in Mexico, especially in Sinaloa, you know, who's driving a Lambo, who, uh, who's driving the uh, latest Urus uh, SUV, you know, it's, it's crazy. And, and they were like super flashy. But since the arrest of El Chapo Guzman, things started like changing. They said, OK, El Chapo got caught because he wanted to make a film of himself. He was flashy. He was uh, his people was, were very flashy. Now we're going to do different um, operations. Now we're keeping it lay low. We're going to keep it quiet. And it's very hard to see right now Lambos or, you know, Ferraris around town. You will see re regular, I don't know, Nissan uh, cars, just regular. No bling, no big bling. And no, no. no blings, nothing <laughs> like that. No armed people around the around town. Um, but they definitely are there. They, um, uh, I mean, I do have sources there and they have eyes all over Culiacán. Um, I step into downtown to make a few shots with my phone, you know, of the of the cathedral, of like the downtown area. And then my contact sent me a photo of myself from behind with a message that said, is this the guy you were helping? Uh, he's, uh, he's right here downtown. And then I was at a plaza eating some shrimps and, you know, and then it's like, now he's at the plaza. So they kept track of every step I was um, 
that you know like doing in in, in Culiacan. Then my contact, I have a, a, lo, a, a long relationship with him, long time relationship for eight years. He's been my source, so we trust each other somewhat, somehow. <laughs> you can never trust these people uh, in full. But um, but he's he started like sending me those those text messages like, hey man, my people is tracking you, making making sure you're all right. But of course, that's not that's not what they care about. You know? And it's this is I, I mean the danger level of this is. I don't know, mind boggling to me, the danger to you um, and the danger to your contact. Like, why would they want to help you? Are you paying them a lot of money? Like, okay, I'm going to help Luis out because he's going to like, I mean, the danger for you to motivate, you know, I know you want the story, but that's, I mean, it's your life on the line. And also mm -hmm. for the contact, their life is on the line. Definitely. I mean, I, I don't, I don't think there will be any amount of money that I, that will be interesting for him since he's making tons of dollars out of drug trafficking um so no I'm, I'm not paying my contact what i usually i started developing this this source at a distance you know um texting each other and um trying to earn his trust you know like giving him messages where hey man i just need to know about this i'm writing a story regarding this and i just need to make sure that i'm not writing the wrong story that i'm not stepping on someone's toes or you know saying something that it's not real uh, and then he started like texting back and he learned that I was never publishing his name, never risking his identity. Uh, he learned how I was doing things, you know? So first of all, that was like a first few contacts. And then we jumped into a phone call, obviously had like many different uh, phone numbers. So uh, we started like chatting on the phone, over the phone. And I was like, man, I'm doing this story. Uh, do you think, I don't know, like, like um, Los Chapitos, the Sons of El Chapo are gonna fight against, uh, I don't know, Mayo Zambada. Um, and he will tell me, no, man, that's, that's totally an official rumor by Mexican government. They are not fighting amongst it. So that kind of reporting we started doing. And then I decided to go to Culiacan and, and send him a message. And I'm like, hey man, I'm gonna step foot into Culiacan and I need to report a couple of stuff. It will be cool if we meet each other in person. Um, I'm, I'm going to be staying at this hotel. I was like fully transparent. And this is the first time you met him? That's the first time I met him. Of course, I was I was nervous. I was um, I was scared for my life, of course. Um, but I mean, at the same time, I had a lot to win. You know, I had a good source and a solid contact in Culiacan um, to, to win and to, to actually report accurate stuff and not just be repeating talking points from government press releases or other journalists. Um, so yeah. <laughs> so so let's take on take this relive this trip with you. You're you're now uh, you made it to Kuyakan. You're going to meet your contact, and uh, you 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 packed not just like a you know a sandwich and your cell phone. You have other things with you. Yes, exactly. I I do I do try to take care of myself, and I do um, what I usually do is I take my laptop, I take my cell phone. Um, I make um, a security um, setup, you know, which is basically having a contact in the U.S., a close friend, relative, or journalist in the U.S., and let them know I'm traveling this route, my plane should be arriving at this time, I'm going to be staying in this hotel, and I should be um, getting back to you every two hours. Um, maybe when I'm going to be out to one of these laboratories or, you know, um, Sicario training camps, 
I'm not going to be able to get in touch, but I should be back in my hotel by this hour, you know? So that's sort of like one of, one of part of the Like we ask our that, kids, you know, when they get out of the house, you know, tell us, yeah. tell me when you're home. Yes, exactly. Yes. And I'm checking in like every now and then. And, um, and of course I call my contact in Sinaloa and come like fully transparent. So like, I mean, this is what I want to do. Um, if you want to, I don't know, show me or tell me, or if it's not doable, just let me know. And that way I won't go all the way to Culiacan and, not, and just like stop my story right there. You know, yeah. um, I also take up a, a couple of, of, of stuff. Like I take this, um, this bracelet, which is, uh, it's called GTFO which can basically break a window if you're kidnapped. You just, That's a, wow. you just do this and it has like this little rock right here. And if you do that, boom, the, the, the window will break like a big hole in it. And then you can just break it, the whole window with your, with your arms or with, your, with, a, with a kick. Um, that's one of the, one of the things I, I, I carry very unsuspicious. It's just like a regular bracelet, you know, it doesn't really look like anything. Um, like that. These are also handcuffs. You just tie them up and whoosh, grab them if you need to handcuff someone. And I also um, use them as a as a bracelet. You know, it's very unsuspicious bracelet, just like that. Um, and yes, and basically that's it. I mean, I, I do have like some razor knives um, in case. I, I will need him to, to escape or anything, but um, most of the times I cannot take that on a, on a plane. So, so sometimes I, I'll just leave that home. Um, I also some, sometimes take um, a different watch other than my Apple watch, uh, just like a flashy one. Because uh, I mean, when, when someone who is not after you directly, when, some, when you get caught in the middle of a criminal, um, and they don't realize that you're a journalist and that you might be a threat to them or whatever, but they just want money. You know, they want to kidnap you, extort you or something like that. Um, they want money. So sometimes if you don't have a bunch of cash on you, because that can be tricky as well, you do have a, a, a pretty nice watch on your, on your arm that you can exchange for your life, you know? So it's just like, take my, my pretty watch. It's a good Rolex you can have it and just give me a couple of hours to, to leave, you know? So, so yeah, that's, that's basically what I, what I pack and what I packed this last time when I was in, in, in Culiacan. Yeah. Wow. And then you um, made it to a fentanyl lab. Yes, exactly. I mean, yeah. I've, I've, I've watched these um, blue M thirties, those fake Percocet peels popping all over in the U S they, they are growing huge in every single city in the U.S. It's like an epidemic. Other than um, cocaine We've lathe. taken care of people who died of them. And yes. I know friends who've died of them. It's terrible. It's, it's, it's terrible. And, and so I wanted to understand, like, who's, who's making these pills? What, what, what's in them? And how much do they cost to produce? How much are they selling these for? Why they started doing these fentanyl pills, you know? So... That was mind blowing to me. So I asked my contacts, I'm like, hey man, I'm looking into these blue peels. I don't know if you see them around and if you can show me around. He's like, yeah, of course, man. You're talking with the right guy. You're talking to the right cartel. We're the reyes, you know, like the kings of M30s. Um, so I was like, can I, can I come and can you take me to one of these labs? They were very, very jealous of showing me the um, machine that presses the peels. And I don't know why, because you can get that 
pressing machine out of Amazon or, you know, it's, yeah. it's, they were proud it's of one. that one. Yeah. They were like, we're not going to show you the machine. And I'm like, I, I don't get that. I, I guess that's the yeah, least exactly. interesting part, you know, yeah. but what about the whole precursors? What about the fentanyl itself? What about the acetone and the, all the stuff that it's in the mix? Yeah. Um, they showed me everything. They, I arrived to Culiacan. Um, I, I thought that I was going to go out to that fentanyl lab during the next couple of days. So I traveled, like I went there planning for eight days. You know? um, but that same night, my contact called me and said like, hey man, let's go tonight. Let's just do it. Uh, so you have stuff to do the next couple of days. Um, and I was like, wow, that was uh, just the right way. I just got here, but yes, I mean, I'm ready. As ready as one can be to go to one of these places, you know? Um, so yeah, he was telling me, obviously he showed up to my hotel room and he laid out uh, the rules. Um, the first it was like no cameras. So I had my, my proper, um, film camera and it was like, no cameras, man. You can only take your phone and have it on airplane mode at all times. Um, we're gonna, we're gonna go to a lab. We're gonna do some crazy driving around town to lose people because I suspect that there are some uh, intelligence Mexican officials staying at your hotel. And I don't know if it's because of you or because of someone else, but we're gonna do some deflective driving. And I was like, uh, by all means, I mean- Did my, you drive or did he drive? I always drive. I never feel comfortable going. That's my only my only request to, to them, you know? I don't get into a car of one of you where I'm not able to drive. My, if, if that's non-negotiable, I won't go. I'll, I'll just call it off and say like, man, if I have to jump in a car with you where, you, where you're driving, I don't feel comfortable and my story doesn't work that much, you know? So I'll just leave it at that. Um, so yeah, I was driving, I had a rental and he asked me to, he sent me a location. I was like, okay, I'm gonna start driving. I'll send you a location. When you're close, just give me a call and keep going, don't stop. So I was like, okay, yes. And I give him a call. So like, I'm arriving at location. It's like, yeah, I see you. Just keep driving. I'm going to follow you close from behind. And then he called me again. And said, like, hey, you have a, a white car following you. I'm pretty sure that's government. Um, and then he started like, giving me directions, you know, like turn right, turn left, stop at that um, store, um, get some, I don't know, uh, candies or whatever, a soda and, uh, and keep driving. And I kept driving and then the white car again. And it was like, there he is again. Um, tried to uh, step on the, um, on the, on the um, speed and make a right right now. So I was like, Whoa, went out and the white car just went straight up. And it was like, okay, we got rid of him. Uh, let's drive again. So we started driving back again into a neighborhood. And then I was at a nice um, apartment complex, you know, right in the, um, in the nice area of Culiacan. And he asked me to stop. So I stopped and he was like, all right, so this is it. This is where you're gonna go. You go first, go knock on the door on the right. They're gonna let you in and that's it. So I went in and I met uh, one guy who was, um, he, wasn't, he wasn't covering his face. Um, when I said that I was gonna start recording, he asked me to cover his face and get like, he had some sun, dark sunglasses on. So, we wouldn't like recognize his face. Um, and he had a bunch of fentanyl pills around. It was like, I don't know, it, it was like around 50,000 pills. Um, and he was just package, packaging everything. 
Um, the smell was awful. I had a proper mask, like a ventilation mask that, uh, that I was uh, made for that. But, uh, but still, I get the fumes. Like every time he will burn one of these pills, you will get the fume and you will feel the effects of the fentanyl. I don't know if I'm hypersensitive because I've never used uh, Did you wear, so you wear a, you wore a mask and, yes. and the person there was more, was wearing a mask. Was wearing a mask, yes. Right. Everybody was wearing a mask and um and then he started like burning one of the pills to test for quality. And gloves or no gloves? He was using gloves, yes. He was using gloves. I was not, but I was I was not touching every, anything on the table. Uh but I, I could feel the fumes, you know. I started like getting like lightheaded and kind of like DC, you know, kind of like slow. And he was like, are you feeling already? And I'm like, yeah, man, I'm, I'm getting gorgeous. Should I, should I go out and get some fresh air? And he's like, no, not, not, nothing is gonna happen to you. You're just gonna feel lightheaded because you're feeling the fumes. But, but, but still, I was like, no, let me just go out and have some fresh air because I don't wanna, you know, I was kind of nervous of, yeah. is this a trap? Are they, gonna, are they gonna have me, you know, like pass out and that's it? So I went out and I started like breathing fresh air uh, for a couple of minutes and then I went back in. Um, and that was like the first time I arrived to to that lab to to, to that place. Yeah, and you you mentioned like the the cook you met you you met the cooks right who yes. make this stuff and yes. and how who teaches them how to make fentanyl? The the the, the guy I met he, uh, a Chinese man came down to Culiacan all the way from China to teach them to teach him how to how to cook um, fentanyl pills. Um, apparently fentanyl, and I thought, honestly, I thought that was a myth where you touch fentanyl or just smell a small quantity of fentanyl and then you can't pass out or have an overdose because I watched mm -hmm. that. I don't know if you watched that clip from, a, I think it was a police officer in California and he gets like an overdose. So I thought that was a total myth, you know, I was like, eh, you cannot pass out from touching a, you know, like a substance. Yeah. Um, but these guys were very scared about uh, the fentanyl. They were like scared. And it was like, so fentanyl- The cooks were scared. They, the they cooks. Were. Yeah, yeah. They were like, okay. man, this is dangerous stuff. You should never touch this. Um, if I open the box, let's make sure every window and door is closed and that we don't make any wind of any kind because we can smell that stuff and then have an overdose. And I was like, all right, how do you learn about all that? And he told me that this Chinese man from, uh, came all over to Bulacan for three months to teach them how to cook, how to handle fentanyl, how to get the precursors and how to make a proper mix and, and, and when you can add more or, or less. He told me that he was trained for, I think, two months. Um, he was just only watching and taking notes. And then the last month was like, okay, you're going to cook by yourself. I'm not going to say anything. I'm just going to be here watching you. And after that, his boss, one of the Sinaloa cartel um, bosses said, okay, we're going to send your stuff all, all, all the way to the U.S. And let's see the reply. Let's see what the customers say about your work. If they love it, you're in. If they don't, you're back to... Who's in? The cook is in? or The cook, is yeah. Okay, They're, that's another thing. So how, how many... So we got, they got one Chinese guy who's mm -hmm. sending the pre precursors. I assume the precursors are coming in from China. Mm -hmm. And they send a guy say, okay, now I'm going to teach you how to assemble this. Mm -hmm. how to, yeah. to make it how many cooks are being trained by the one chinese guy just one at a time that that's what i that's what i was told just one at a time and then he when when he has like a couple of years in 
he has to train another one, you know? Mm-hmm. So after two years, they train another one in case he passes out or he dies or he gets kidnapped or, you know, by another organization. They're very valuable to the organization. So they are very kidnappable, you know? <laughs> so another group can come and say like, let's kidnap this guy who knows how to do fentanyl. And basically I thought we would have a class, you know, like, hey, this is, they'd have several students in the same. Yeah, uh, no, apparently just one by one. One on one. Uh-huh. Interesting. And didn't you say that the cook had an overdose? Well, the, the helper, the new, the new one, the trainee, you know, this yeah. cook was training another kid. Yeah. And that other kid was like extremely scared about the uh, fentanyl bag. He was like pushing away and he had like a double mask and, you know. So I was like, what's what's with you? Why, why are you so scared? Is he that dangerous? And he told me, I just got up um, out of the hospital two days ago. I had an overdose. Uh, my mask moved a little. And then so I inhaled um, some of the um, some of the pure fentanyl. And I I was blacked out and I, I was in coma for eight days in, in at a hospital. Um, just choking us that. And I'm, I'm just out. And I'm like, you're just out of the hospital for a coma and you're back at cooking? And it's like this is this is what I do, man. I mean, it's a living. It's that's a living, and they they they're not paid that, you know. I mean, for Mexico, they're being paid uh, four thousand US dollars a month. Uh, so for Mexico, it's not that's it's not too good. bad. Yeah, I mean, it's not it's not super good. You, you, they can't live, you know, like super well. But if you didn't study anything, if you're not a, a professional, a doctor or whatever. Um, that's that's a pretty good payment. So that's the the so t- talk to us a little bit about the economics of things. So a cook uh, makes four thousand dollars a month, mm-hmm. um, and you're talking about batches of fifty thousand pills at a time. And mm-hmm. each pill, how much is how much do the pills cost? They, to produce them, they they told me they they um, spend uh, fifty US cents for each pill to cook, um, and they sell that for around four to five US dollars each. So. The um, you know, the profit profitability of each peel is is huge. It's, wow. it's it's very very big, and of course they do have to pay the guy who transports the um, the peels to the border because Sinaloa is far from the border, so they have to transport that to either Tijuana, Mexicali, Ciudad Juarez, um, Reynosa, you know, all these different um, borders, and they do have to pay that that guy. But they don't pay a lot to that guy because that guy he's uh, basically a freelance. So he he has a lot of clients, you know. He has people who say like I have two kilos of coke, and another one said like I have ten kilos of weed, and another one said like I have twenty kilos of fentanyl pills. So he gets money from all of them, stacks them in the same car, and drives them to to the border. And you you have an interesting. They have a method of quality control. Uh, right? Where, uh, like, how do they know that this is a good batch or not batch? Yeah, that was, that was mind blowing. And I forgot to add a detail on, on the video on on my, on my short clip that I had. Uh, And this is very important and is they do have a bunch of addicts around them to try the pills. And that's, I mean, that's not only mind blowing, that's immoral. You know, they do have addicts and say like, okay, try this pill and let me know what you think. Some of them die, of course. Some of them overdose. Some of them say, like, no, this wasn't this was not strong enough. Um, so you need to cook a new batch. So they have a bunch of addicts trying fentanyl pills for them. Uh, but at the same guinea time, pigs. Uh, They're guinea pigs. They're yeah, guinea exactly. Pigs. Yeah, basically. Yeah, yeah. 
And and then at the same time, they have um, like a quality control for pills. You know, they have a they need to be of certain color for each client. They know that in Chicago they don't like greenish pills. They like deep bluish. You know, they know that in LA they like it. They like them greenish. So they have different set of colors. Um, a, di a, a different notebook for each and say like, okay, so for LA, it's going to be two drops of pink and one drop of blue, you know, so stuff like that. Wow. Um, they do burn the peel to know that the peel slides on a foil. Um, what does that mean? What does that, that mean if that, it slides that, that basically means that if the, if the peel, if they burn the peel and the peel starts sliding down, mm -hmm. that's like a good quality peel because it's uh, it's greasy and it's sliding. If the peel gets stuck into the foil aluminum paper, um, it means that's not good quality. That that, that peels that the whole batch needs to be redo. That's crazy. I I did meet an an American patient in the hospital and. And I asked him where he got his drugs. And he was very proud that he doesn't pay for drugs because he's mm -hmm. the tester. <laughs> yes. You know, so he gets yeah. it, he gets it for free. Um, That's crazy. But you you ask these people, like, what it, you asked him about what do they think about people dying from this drug? What was their mm -hmm. reaction? Basically, um the, the cook was very um they tried to feel better of what they do, you know. So of course. He, what he said is like, I'm only doing what I'm requested to do. I mean, if I were doing this and, not, and had no clients, I wouldn't be doing this, you know? Why? I will be like washing cars or, you know, working at a factory or whatever else. There is clients and people requesting. So if, I'm, if I don't do it, someone else is going to do it. Someone else is going to get that money. So why not me? You know, so he was like, I don't make the, I don't make addicts. See, that's what he says, you know, like that's what he really believes. It's like the addicts are requesting for these products and I'm just delivering to them. And it's he said, so funny. Yeah. You know, said, you know where else I heard that? Mm -hmm. I heard that when we, we visited uh, a marijuana dispensary and the mm -hmm. owners were like, this is what people want. This is yeah. what they need. And I, and I said, but people are dying from it. It's like, well, well that's not our fault. That's yeah. what the law, we're following so the law. Exactly. So exactly exactly right. like that they are very, just very different orders. than a doctor right if i gave some a medicine to somebody and they died or had a bad reaction yeah. the first thing i would do is stop yeah exactly <laughs> then exactly. i would ask questions right? definitely because you know you have a full responsibility on what right. you're giving out to people and so these guys don't feel any responsibility at all they, they feel so so they have these um clients that send messages back and say like you know what we need stronger stuff and then i told him the, during this period of time, a lot of people died. And most of that product was traced back to your curtail. And it was like, well, yes, the thing is we were trying out. It was, was trial and error. We had a bad batch of too much fentanyl. A lot of people started like overdosing. So it was like, okay, so we need to take it down a notch. And I was like, don't you feel responsible for all those? And he's like, I'm not, oh, you know, like forcing them to take the pills. They are taking the pills already. And of course, I mean, you can't go into a proper conversation with them because they don't feel, they don't want to feel guilty. They start getting angry, you know. So, yeah. You know, I was thinking about how you're saying, okay, you could, you used to be able to see the flashy uh, uh, people in the cartels with their Lamborghinis or Ferraris. Yeah. Um, what about some Chinese guy in Sinaloa? Doesn't that stand out? Like, what are you doing here? Yes, yes, definitely. And And I think, and I think it's, it happens. It has to happen in Sinaloa, especially in Culiacan, because 
um, no one can enter Sinaloa or Culiacán without permission, you know, of the cartel. So that's a city fully in control of the cartel. So if they see a Chinese, who's gonna say what? You know, like they're gonna, they're just gonna make us if they didn't see anyone. They're like, well, that's weird. It was a Chinese, but who are they gonna tell? When I border the, um, when I border the, the the plane back to Mexico City from Culiacán the last day. I saw a lot of Americans dressed in camel um, boarding the same plane from Culiacán to Mexico City. And I couldn't resist thinking what they were doing. Yeah, I mean, (laughs) what what were those guys doing in Culiacán? If not, maybe training some of the sicarios, you know? They they look like US military or former military. Um, a A lot of them were young people, a lot of them were old people. So, so I was like, mm, that that was that was interesting to see them boarding a, a flight. So you you make your living off journalism, but this this is very interesting work. Does U.S. law enforcement or intelligence ever mm-hmm. come to you and ask you about what you're seeing? Yes, yes. I mean, it, it was more often uh, some like four or five years ago. I don't know why. Maybe they just gave up. <laughs> but uh, but yes, I do get across the border a lot. So one of those times when I was walking across the border. I was stopped by some of them, like some plainclothes officials and asked me if they could talk to me. And I said, yes, they took me to a different room and they told me that they were reading what I was writing on and that, that I had some interesting access to, to stuff that might be helpful for them. Mm-hmm. And I was like, of course, I mean, I mean, you have my handles, follow me on Instagram, follow me on my YouTube channel. You, you'll learn a lot about what I do. And they were like, so do you think we can start cooperating? And I was like, what, what do you mean cooperating? What was what is what is that entitled? And they said, like, what well, we can basically pay you for for information. Every it, it, but they were like very also very um, I don't know if unclear or not transparent. Did they, they ask like, you to be a spy, Luis? They basically asked me to <laughs> to share information that was gonna be helpful. And I told them, like, is this gonna end up in you guys arresting people? getting see so like basically what we do is reports and every time we get a hit that's how they call the reports is like a report is a report that goes through and that our supervisor says this is a good report we can pay you if it's not a good report we can't pay you and um the other thing is like we are not going to go and do arrests and stuff what we're going to do is share this information to mexican officials and i was like so what do you think it's going to happen to me uh, right when you share that to mexican officials he's yeah. like no no we're going to be very careful I was like, I mean, the one thing is I'm a journalist, I'm not a spy. I do my living on this. I do have family. I am taking an enormous risk already just by writing on this. I can't have a double life, you know? I can't have like where I'm reporting to you and doing this and doing that. That's just too much, too much pressure on my own health. You know, like that, and and it's not. Journalists have been murdered in Mexico. It's been six in six weeks. It's awful. It's it's getting it's getting bad in Mexico, you know, for for Mexican journalists. Um, it's it's already a very dangerous situation situation for us down here, and frustrating as well, you know, because because they I mean it's it's the impunity in Mexico that is killing us. That that drug traffickers know, and politicians know that nothing's gonna happen if they kill a journalist because they've tried that too many times. You know, they've killed a bunch of journalists. And never happen. Nothing ever happens. Sometimes they will just, you know, arrest the guy with a gun, but they will never go to order that killing, you know, because 
most of the times it's politicians, it's not even drug traffickers. It's um, people in power. Yeah. Wow. All right. So, and I've heard you, so again, just praying for your safety. Listening to these <laughs> stories are very like, um, I've heard you say things like, you need to change the name from drug trafficking organization mm -hmm. to a criminal organization. Can you explain what you mean by that? What are, Definitely. Why do you need a name change? If, you, if you've seen uh, Narcos and Narcos Mexico in, in Netflix, that was a time where these guys or these organizations were drug trafficking organizations. All they wanted to do is just traffic some drugs because they knew that once a load of coke make it across the border, its, it's price goes way up than what they paid for it. You know, it's just basic market. <laughs> so again, getting a chip and selling it for twice or maybe 50 times uh, the, the, um, the money I paid for that. And that's what they, they were doing. And they paid politicians to let them go through. They do have um, a lot of killings, but mostly on other drug cartels, you know, because they wanted to own that specific part of town to get drugs across or whatever. Um, or someone stole some of their drugs and they had to kill them. But right now it's 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 not about drugs anymore. I, I don't think it's even, I mean, I don't think drug traffickers are even involved in the whole thing. This is a different thing. This is, this is criminal organization. They are involved in kidnapping, extorting, monopolizing legal markets like um, cigarette market, the alcohol market, the um, lemon, avocado, um, some uh, blogging, you know, um, wood that goes up to, to the U.S. and so, some other countries. Avocados are, not, are being... Avocados are huge for cartels. Avocados are huge. Like every Super Bowl season, you will see a bunch of killings in Michoacan every single year for forever, <laughs> since ever. Because during Super Bowl season, the U.S. consumes a huge quantity of avocados that skyrockets the prices in Mexico. So cartels say like, okay, it's money time, you know? They go and extort farmers. They go and try to fight each other for controlling avocado farms to make a ton of money, to pay for their guns, for more drug loads, all that stuff. So it's, it's crazy how they are not all over the drugs right now. They are all over everything. And now politics as well. They control the politics, they control politicians all over Mexico, and they are trying to monopolize the places where they they themselves put a certain president or a certain you know, mayor or the chief, chief of police or governor. Um, so this is not drug trafficking anymore. This is way far from drug trafficking. This is criminal organizations properly. You know? what, what is human trafficking? Tell us about... You said sure. that they're involved in that. What does that mean? What does it mean to traffic? Well, human trafficking, it's it's usually two things. Um, so most of the times people understand human trafficking as human smuggling, which is a completely different operation. Human smuggling is basically smuggling um, migrants from Mexico to the U.S. And that's a huge business for um, cartels right now. Um, as the um, influx of migrants is growing to a number never seen before, they are monopolizing the whole business of human smuggling. Mm -hmm. And that's giving a lot of re revenue for them. Um, and human trafficking is a completely different thing. Human trafficking is more about um, sex, uh, forced labor, 
um, you know, sex slaves and uh, basically kidnapping people to be sold in in a different country. And they do have the hands on that, although it's not as huge as they think it is because it's a more complex operation. It, is it mostly women or is it also men? It's it's mostly women and mostly poor women from, from indigenous um, um, states around Mexico, like from Southern state or Central America. Um, they, they are usually more of the, of the victims of human trafficking. Oh, that's so, yeah, it's awful. Let's talk about um, methamphetamine. Methamphetamine is also, I'm in San Diego, plaguing San Diego, homeless, mm -hmm. psychosis, mental health, really a, a, a huge toll um, <laughs> in our society. Something else that, um, and a new cooking method. I don't, did you, did you learn about that? The P2P method of making, fen, uh, making methamphetamine instead of using Sudafed, um, they're getting the precursors, I think, from China and making this P2P methamphetamine. Yes, that, that's, that's uh, the last time I was in, in one of those labs was like, I think two or three years ago, and it's a completely different operation. It's not an indoors operation, like the, like the last um, um, lab I was telling you about. This is, a, this is an outdoors operation. It's a, it's a huge, um, you know, like pot, where they mix a lot of stuff, a lot of acetone, and they do bring a bunch of these precursors from China or from Germany. I don't, I don't know why from Germany. I don't know if in, German, in Germany the precursors are legal as well, but, um, but they told me that the two ways they get these precursors are China and Germany. Um, and so it's, it's again, profit, profitability. They learn that changing the um, pseudoephedrine I think it was that what they used before. Yeah, the Sudafed. Yeah. Uh huh. For for the P two B, it's 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 way more more profitable. You know, it's it's they do they, the margins grow by maybe more than a hundred percent. And and again, they do have this discourse of this is what the market in the U S is um, is requesting right now. You know, which I don't know if that's true because I think what it starts with them cooking different stuff and trying trying it out. And then when people in the U.S. of course says, oh, what, this is stronger, this is good. And for them, okay, it works, it's cheaper and it's stronger for them. And, you know, it's better for us. Yeah, I don't, I mean, I think there's a huge supply side which creates the demand rather yeah. than the other way around. But yes. um, so, and you mentioned that there, you know, we had a recent, the largest drug bust in history for methamphetamine um, was was shown um, recently at the border. I think it was in Texas. Um, all this confiscated methamphetamine, um, you know, showing a, you know her heroic um, seizure. And you mentioned something about that. That it was not a real. That it was just a show. Yes, and the thing is, okay, when when they find these, when they find these huge um, loads, either of cocaine or methamphetamine or whatever, I, I and I know that this for sure because that product was coming from Culiacan, and and I know because I was recently there and they were talking about a load like this, so I was like, okay, that load was was fake. That was a setup, you know. That was a setup to make authorities look good. Most of the times happen three things. One, they start finding small quantities of each drug and then they put it together at a place and say like, wow, we found this huge amount of drugs, which it, it wasn't 
found in, in one place, you know, altogether. Um, and two, most of the times, even happens at the border with CBP officers, they don't try every single load of cocaine. They try randomly one or two or three packages. And they say like, okay, positive for cocaine, positive for cocaine. Positive. But in the mix, there's a bunch of stuff that it's not even cocaine, it's whatever else, you know? And that's to create a distraction, to have the real proper bigger load get across the border. Um, and on the other hand, also you will have these negotiations between drug organization and um, chief of police or politicians where let's say I'm a chief of police that I wanna become a governor in the future. So I need to start giving out results. So I make a deal with one of these guys and say like, hey man, if you start telling me where your enemy is hiding the huge stash, I'm gonna be busting him, helping you. And I'm gonna be, you know, saying to the community that I'm helping out with drug busts, you know? And that's what, that's most of these drug busts, that's what, that's the, that's the case. Either one of, of these three um, cases. The other thing they know that Mexican officials know, and I, I, I talked, I recently spoke with the former federal police chief. He told me the thing is, when you find a huge load, the only thing you know about that is that that load is only around the 10% of the, of the whole quantity that is going around that city or on a certain uh, port of entry. So that means if that was a 10% or less of the quantity of, of the total quantity of methamphetamine going through that city, that means it's floating the border, border areas. You know, it's, 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 a, it's, a, it's a huge uh, quantity going to the U.S. Yeah, crazy. And then, and what we capture, you're saying, is only about 10% of what's coming across the border. Yes, yes, right. exactly. It's so, right. so yeah, yeah, it's only, yeah. So, um, the, the fentanyl, you mentioned the fentanyl is the precursors are coming for China or stolen. You mentioned also that or stolen from pharmacies, pharmacies. But, right? And when it comes to the United States, we found that the fentanyl is in, you know, comes on its own, but it's also mixed in cocaine and in methamphetamine and in these pills and in even marijuana now. Is that happening on the Mexican side or on the American side where it's getting mixed into everything every time i ask about that this the, the people in sinaloa have either one or two reactions either they get angry or they start laughing when i show them some news about we being mixed with fentanyl they start laughing they're like it doesn't really make sense to mix weed with fentanyl so it's like why will someone mix that with that you know it doesn't really make sense to them um and the other thing when i show them like okay so this is an overdose from cocaine, but they found also fentanyl in it. Um, they're like, okay, this is this is happening on the U.S. side of the border. This is happening from the de street dealers that want to make a bigger profit of it. So they add some fentanyl to it. That's what they say. I, I can't be completely maybe sure they have that. Maybe there's so much volume of fentanyl because it's so cheap to make and less of meth and cocaine and other drugs and that's why yeah. i don't know uh, yes i mean that 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 might make the most sense you know like to mm -hmm. cut the cocaine with a short quantity of fentanyl so it's still strong but you get more profit out of it but um but at the same time i don't know 
where are they getting that fentanyl from? You know, if, if it's either on the black market as well, if the uh, pure fentanyl is getting sold in the streets, or are they getting it from pharmacies, mm-hmm. from, you know, so yeah, that, that's how that's how that. And, and they're very smart and creative in ways to smuggle into the United mm-hmm. States. What are, what are some of the most creative ways that you've come across? I saw I, mean, I saw a, like a methamphetamine burrito. I thought yeah, I mean, they, they, they did use burritos. They, re, they recently found a huge amount of coconuts all filled with coconuts. cocaine. <laughs> yes. um, but I guess the most creative thing and resilient about criminal organizations was using ex- exclusively um, Americans, U.S. citizens, and that happened during the pandemic. During the pandemic. Um, say, say that again. You use only uh, Ameri- Amer- Americans, U.S. citizens specifically. Oh, using human tra- smugglers. Smugglers. All of them exclusively U.S. citizens. During the pandemic, most of the borders were closed, were shut down for other than uh, U.S. citizens or residents, uh, permanent residents. Uh, so they said, like, okay, so we need to do something in order to keep smuggling drugs into the U.S. This means we need to recruit a bunch of U.S. citizens and permanent residents to start smuggling for us. And I went to Mexicali with the border on Calexico to, to one of these packaging places where they package, uh, where they stash cars full of drugs. And they allowed me to interview this woman who had five kids. She was unemployed and going through the pandemic. She was desperate. So they were offering her 500 bucks for each trip they uh, she she'll do. Plus she can keep the car they will they will give her. Um, so she said yes, and she's like, you know, I'm just gonna do it maybe a week. And that's it. She was in it for six months by then. I followed her uh, out across the border, and she got secondary right at the border. So she got stopped and searched for for drugs on her car. And we agreed to meet at a motel around in Calexico. Um, so I stayed there for two hours and she wasn't showing off. So I was like, okay, that was it for her. You know, they, they caught her. Um, she arrived later after two hours, she arrived and she was like, man, they didn't find anything. Where was, was like, it? Well, Where was it hidden? It, it was, well, I, I, I didn't even see, but they usually hit it on the, um, on the, um, field compartment where you know where, where the field goes okay. um so I'm, I'm not sure if that was the case uh, but they do uh they do clean it with um with a bunch of uh with a bunch of like oil like vegetable oil and all that stuff so the dogs won't smell it and they do wash the packages with a bunch of stuff um so she was like this is it i was super scared and I think this, this is the last time I'm gonna I'm gonna do this. And I was like, what are you doing in the first place? You know, I mean, I know you don't have money. I know you're unemployed, but at the same time, you have five kids. If you go to jail, who's gonna take care of your five kids? They're gonna go to child services or some stuff like that. You know, um, and she's like, yeah, no, I mean, I, I really need to stop doing this. Uh, but they have an army of U.S. Uh, people of Americans Can- smuggling for them. And so, so this this woman is she? Let's say she got caught. Mm-hmm. Um, going to jail would would the cartels be after her? For oh, you you they, cost us they, you know, fifty thousand dollars of our stuff or whatever. Yeah, they instruct them every um, every smuggler. They instruct them that if they get caught, what they need to send immediately as they get into Yale is proof of their arrest, proof of 
they found 20 kilos in that car and that that's why I was arrested. Otherwise, they're going to go after you and your family. So what they do, they if they get to jail, if they get caught, they call a family member or their lawyer and say, like, can you get me the proof of what was hidden in my car and why I was arrested when? So I can mail that. So, they're so, not in, so their lives is not in danger in on danger. the Mexican side. Exactly, because that way the narcos will see and, and, and you know, like um, say, okay, this guy was arrested and the law was compromised. So what, what can we do about it? You know? But if they don't show that, they go after them or the family. Wow. All right. Scary stuff. Yeah, um, it's crazy stuff. Mar marijuana. So the, the, in California, I'm in California. Um, mm -hmm. We have a lot of illegal marijuana grows in our public lands. And, mm -hmm. um, and the cost to clean that up, I'm told, is more money than cleaning up an oil spill. Yeah. Um, and, and these are people, uh, growers from Mexico. That's what mm -hmm. I hear. Is that... Can you tell me about that? Is that true? Are they sending their their agricultural specialists to to California? I think yes. I mean, for what I've heard, I was um, sometime uh, like two years ago. I was in the border of uh, Altar, um, in, you know, in Sonora, right across Arizona, and I met one of the um, one of the families of this huge trafficker called Caro Quintero. He was a nephew for Caro Quintero, and. He was like a preppy guy, you know, well-educated with money. And he wasn't really joyful about getting over, you know, like getting to work on his family's business, which was drug trafficking. Um, he showed me a huge warehouse with, with a bunch of bundles of marijuana. And I was like, what, this is, this is huge too, for a statute in New Mexico. He's like, dude, we're not selling anything. Since the weed got legalized in the US, we're selling less and less and less. So I get warehouses packed with rotten weed, you know, that gets gets here. Um, and I'm like, so what are you planning to do? And he's like, I'm a US citizen. I'm gonna go to the other side and establish a proper legal crop, you know, or sell my services as a weed grower. And that's what it's happening to a bunch of them. They're selling services as agricultural weed experts um, for US people, maybe Mexican descent or whatever, but people in the US that were wasn't that were never involved before in the weed business, but that they are seeing an opportunity in the US. They're seeing like, okay, we can either set this up legally or sell it, set, set it up illegally. Who's yeah. gonna notice, you know, who's gonna notice the difference between a legal or an illegal crop? Well, I think the, the difference is, and I'm, I'm going to have a person on my podcast just who's an expert in, in agriculture, but that they're using um, fertilizers that are illegal in the United States that's yes. killing wildlife, endangered and wildlife, and they're stealing water, exactly. you know, when we're in a drought. From the use of water. Areas. Yeah. Exactly. That's that's the worst part of them. Uh, I yeah. mean, the, of, of course, a legal crop is... Um, um, regulated on the water they can use and the type of the crop. But an illegal crop uses a bunch of water, especially in a place like California, which where, that, that is not as humid as, you know, La Sierra de Chihuahua or the, the mountains in Sinaloa. Um, it's a dry place and it's around a city, which is getting dry and they use a bunch of water for this. So there is a, there is a, a indirect consequence for, for this, but I guess the weed market went from being in Mexico to be in the U.S. You know, it'd be illegal as, as it was in Mexico, but now is already established and well uh, doing 
in in the US. So that's that's crazy. That's something that I guess no one saw that coming, you know. Yeah, but I think that the illegal market is still way way bigger than the legal market. Definitely. So really yes. still destroying the lands. Yes. So I have an amazing coworker, uh, Larry Irwin, who really has like a 360 degree view of drugs because he also wor he works as a physician assistant in my emergency department on the medical side. And then he's a full-time police officer on the other side and awesome. sees what's happening at 911 calls. And he's uh, calling into High Truths um, today and asking, what can the United States do to combat the transport of drugs into the United States? What are from from what you see, what are some solutions, and how can we keep drug cartels out of the U.S. border? I think it's 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 far from a law enforcement perspective. You know, I think the U.S. needs to pressure Mexico into stop impunity and corruption. I think that's the main component that keeps flowing drugs not only to the U.S. but also to Europe and, and other countries around the world and keeps making drug cartels or criminal organizations powerful in Mexico, hurting journalists, regular citizens, um, and, and, and making them very, very powerful. And I think, I mean, you can have a bunch of law enforcement, you can close the border, you can have a bigger wall, and drugs are still going to get into the U.S. because they're getting on corruption. They're getting on corrupted officials in both sides, on both sides of the border. They are working on the drugs are being transported on a, on the on a, on a, on the on a proper ports of entry you know they don't get by land on you know the desert or whatever or jumping the fence they are being transported in regular uh, lines of the ports of entry um, the other day i was doing some math and some numbers and the number i came up with was for for each, every 10 person around a port of entry, one of them is carrying a load, you know? So that's that's basically the, the, the statistics. And Wait, that, that, one out of 10, say that one more time. One out, one of, out 10. of 10 is carrying a load of drugs. Um, in, of US citizens? Of, I mean, of every everybody entering Crossing the, the US, border? Of course, the border, yes. One of every 10 cars. That's a lot. That's a lot. That, that's the only way out that amount of um, drugs have this availability all over the US. You know, the US has a lot of consumption in, inside, the, inside the country. The, the, the consumption inside the US is it's huge. Yeah, uh, so that's, the, and, the, that's the sad part of being a rich country. <laughs> exactly, exactly, because you have the availability of money so they can pay for drugs. And imagine all the drugs that are being stashed and they're not yet in the streets, you know? So it's a bunch of drugs going into the US. And, you know, you. You have a, a rule of law, you have proper law enforcement, but Mexico don't. That means criminals are getting rich and richer and richer by the second. And they can pay whatever amount of money a CBP officer will ask them, a border patrol officer will ask him. Maybe it's not a general thing happening around the border. And I know that for a fact, so I know a lot of CBP officers, border patrol officers, and they're doing the right thing. They have their, their heart in the right place. But maybe one of them, is working. Maybe one of them, one of their supervisors, is allowing bundles or drugs across. Wait, wait, wait! You're saying our own CDPH border patrol agents have some corruption within them? 
that's the only way this amount of drugs, because you're not understaffed, you know, you have a bunch of staff. And I see when every time I cross, I see them doing a proper job on me on, and on every, and everyone, you know, I see them checking your passport. I see them looking on your car, looking for suspicious activity, looking for suspicious plate numbers. And it's like, so how can I bring a huge load of cocaine or pills or whatever, if these guys are doing the right thing, and I see them every time doing the right thing, doing their, their job, and I know a lot of them, and they are super aware that one of those guys, and they get and they caught a lot of people with drugs, but it's when you talk to criminals, they say like, okay, there's only two ways to get across. It's either paying them, having them on payroll, or extorting them. And the, the way they extort these officers is by girls. They say like, they love women, they love girls. So you send out a pretty girl, and entice them at a bar, at a restaurant, at the same port of entry. She hands out her number. They get enrolled to something. And when they get to bed, guess what? I'm an underage. I have everything recorded. And you're going to start doing what I tell you, or I'm going to expose you. And some of them are very scared because they have family. They're like, okay, whatever. And so they start doing that before actually telling their supervisors, you know, this is happening in my life. And that's mind-blowing. That's crazy. But that's, that's what they do. Wow. And they can only do that because they get so powerful in Mexico. These criminal organizations are getting extremely powerful in, in Mexico. Well, my very good friend, Jonathan Morales, is a Border Patrol agent. I'm proud of him. He um, won the highest um, you know, praise in the United States as being a police officer of the year mm -hmm. because he uh, rescued uh, congregants in my synagogue. Wow. And last year, he lost his daughter to one of those blue pills. Damn. That's Even though how, yeah. it's his job to keep those pills out of our country, exactly. he lost his own daughter because he didn't really know, um, yeah. you know, what that is. And that's the thing. It's, it's, there's a lot of offer. I mean, I know there's a lot of demand in the U.S., but the offer also is huge. It's available everywhere right. in every single corner of the U.S., and that's, that's a threat, you know, to, to that country. I, I think it's a it's murdering our citizens because Literally. a lot of these kids, you know, you know, Jonathan's daughter, she was murdered. She didn't know. Exactly. When I was fentanyl. when I was a kid, I used to party in El Paso all the time, you know. And sometimes you will get uh, in front of pills, and you will take them without knowing what they are, and not not saying like you know, I'm not saying every single kid they know what they're taking. When you're partying or whatever, you will just try it, and fortunately. That for me, the, the, the one time I tried that was, okay, it was just ecstasy, you know, and I learned about ecstasy and how that works and, it, you know, but right now it's different drugs. I mean, imagine I have a kid, I have a five-year-old kid and I can't think when he grows older, what, I mean, if, there, if we're at a place where drugs are available so easily, he's not going to ask what's in it. He's not going to have like a proper testing, you know, like, what is this? Let me try it. Let me test it. They're just going to go for it. And they could die at the first time yeah. they try that. You know, you, you start at a young age to treat your kids' resiliency and 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 you know and yeah. to do not to get into that in the first place and, and to protect your brain until you're 25 years old. Say that. Yes. No, <laughs> in exactly. Most of my episodes, you're not. You may be an adult. You may be going to college. You may be think. You may even be married, but mm -hmm. your your brain is not done growing till you're 25 years old. Yes, exactly. And at that point, you're you're more susceptible. Um, but so solutions, getting back to Larry's questions, you're saying, you know, investing in Mexican-U.S. relationships, um, China relationships. Specifically out of law enforcement, because the other thing that's been happening is 
the U.S. is investing a lot of money in training uh, elite police officers in Mexico. And what they do is cartels pay them to train them. You know, So again, all the training that Navy SEALs, Green Berets, all these very specialized people in the U.S. are giving to Mexican officials ends up in cartels. And it's used against us, proper citizens. And it's terrible. It's our history. We did that in Afghanistan and in Iraq. And it always comes back to to bite us in the butt. Yes. (laughs) And so I I don't think the right approach is to spend more in law enforcement, is to spend more in policies, you know, where the U.S. can help out Mexico in how to get rid of corruption, how to pay better police officers, how to get them in line. How is the U.S. making it so that police officers in the U.S. are well-respected citizens, you know? And I think it's against American politics to to invest in, um, you know, in elections of other countries of, mm-hmm. for, to serve our purpose. Yeah. I don't, you know, I think we've done that in the past, but in, in general, that's not been the way, but that's interesting. So border wall, yes or no on the wall? No, it's not. I mean, I don't, I don't think, I don't think it's, uh, it's useful. I've seen it enough years living at the border. It's not doing any help. It's just making my money again to criminals, to smugglers. Because they say, well, what well, guess what? The wall is bigger now. That means it's harder for us to smuggle you. So I'm gonna have to charge so you twice what up. I was. Yeah. So that's the only use the the wall is is off. Because drugs are going in on regular ports of entry. And people are still being smuggled by, you know, sea over the wall across desert areas, mountains. Um, so yeah, it's it's only making criminals richer in, in this side of the border. And the criminals themselves, are they users? Because usually the drug traffickers in the United States, them, they themselves have probably a substance use disorder and use a little for themselves and sell to others. Mm-hmm. Um, in the big cartels, I think you mentioned the cook, they're not allowed to use any drugs, not even marijuana. Exactly. The cooks and my, my contact in, in Sinaloa, they are not users. They are strictly against using drugs themselves. And I think it's a matter of their bosses knowing what this drug is do, is going to do to them, you know. Um, so, yes, the, the first rule is don't use it. Don't use it. So they don't use it. They do sell it. Um, they do have it around, but they don't use any kind of, not even weed. So, so they're like clean people. So I guess they know firsthand what they're mixing into all that stuff, you know. That's great. Any final advice you have to um, Larry? Larry, yeah. the one who called in. Yeah, I mean, I guess it's it's a matter of education, you know, educating people properly, not by alarming them, not by doing, you know, these scandalous uh, headlines where stuff, it's not re- even real because kids know and people generally know when you're lying, you know, but telling them this is what is in it. That's what, that's why I wanted to go all the way to Culiacan to a Fenton lab to tell people this is what's in it. This is how a lab looks. And I've received a, a couple of comments on my on my video yeah. of people saying, you know, I used to do a lot of these pills, but when I learned how they've been made, I stopped using them. Because, yeah, I mean, you wouldn't think they're being made by like that on a very dirty and bad place, you know? So I guess that uh, if we get more information going on into that, kids are gonna know what they're, taking and why not to take it (laughs) why not why it's not worth it 
So I want to say thank you. Thank you to Larry. Um, it's been a real, it's an honor and pleasure to work by your side for many years. I'm proud of the unique dual role you have in our community, in the medical field as a physician assistant, in a busy, stressful emergency department, and also as a law enforcement officer in a, another stressful, dangerous part of town. You're really yes. amazing. And thank you, uh, Luis Chaparro, please stay safe. It's been a fascinating conversation to learn about um, your side of aspects of drugs and the labs and cartels, um, um, where you're coming from. I wish you the best of luck in telling your stories, but please be safe. And to our high, stru- high um, truth listeners, if you want to hear and see uh, more of Luis's uh, videos and stories, I will have his contact information on the High Truth show notes. Dr. Rod, thank you very much for, for having me here. I, um, I really respect what you do uh, as a doctor and as um, um, a um, content uh, maker on these topics. And um, I'll just want to say one last thing. I really do respect a lot uh, of, of what the law enforcement in the U.S. is doing um, because they're also risking their lives. It's not easy to go into a nursery room or into a patrol in any city in the U.S., especially right now. Well said. Thank you for listening to High Truths on Drugs and Addiction, where national experts bring you facts and answer your questions. This week's episode would not be possible without the generous support from our sponsor. A sincere and warm thank you to FAF, Families Against Fentanyl. Visit familiesagainstfentanyl.org and sign the petition to declare illegal fentanyl a weapon of mass destruction. Make drug dealers think twice and three times before peddling killer drugs. Our producer is Dave Rivas from Davy Boy Productions. I am your host, Dr. Oni Lev. We hope we brought your day a little bit more high truths. <laughs> <laughs>